honored to be bringing God's word today. For those who may not know me, my name is Jasmine Wangai. I serve here as part of the pastoral staff, and I'm really celebrating what God is doing in his church. Aren't you? We all are. It's my joy to bring God's word today. Last week, we saw the blessedness of a man who does not walk, right, stand, and sit in the way of sinners. Thank you very much for supporting me. But instead does what? Delight. And what else? And meditates on what? On the law of the Lord. Thank you for the encouragement. But probably you're here, and after the sermon, you felt like the blessed man feels like a call to be a morally upright person, and you're not anywhere close to that. Maybe you're seated here, and you heard when you're being told to not walk, to not sit, to not associate, to not sit completely and confident in doing that. You felt like, I don't think I am anywhere close to there. If I reflect on how I have lived my past few years or months or weeks, I don't, I don't feel like I'm that person. But today, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to show you another side of a blessed person. Another side of one who is a recipient of God's grace. So please turn with me to the book of Psalms chapter 32. Let me read. Blessed is he who, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgive my sin. Salah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. And then the favorite word, Salah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by beat and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous, seeing all you who are upright in heart. And that's the word of God. That's the word of God. Praise be to God indeed. Last week when we were going through the book of Psalm chapter 1, we said it's not very clear who specifically wrote that psalm. It could have been, more, it could have been um, David or it could have been Solomon, Solomon. But this one is pretty clear that Psalm chapter 32 was written by David. This psalm there is what they call a didactic or an instructive psalm. It is a psalm that gives people or the, or the readers instructions on what it is they need to do. David in the book of Psalm chapter 51, the one we love reading when he's repenting, wash me, cleanse me, oh Lord, you have searched me. You know that psalm? Chapter 51, verse 13, here's something that he says. He promised to teach transgressors the way of the Lord. 
You know, Lord, after you forgive me, I will teach transgressors your way. When you read the book of Psalm chapter 32, it feels like this is a fulfillment of that promise that David made when he, read, when he wrote that psalm. And this is a thing we see in scriptures that God commends a lot. There's this story uh, where Jesus is seated with his disciples during the Last Supper. It's in Luke chapter 22, verse 32. And then he uh, starts to address Peter. And he calls him and tells him in, in verse 32, Simon, Simon, uh, Satan has asked to sift you, but I have prayed for you. And then he adds this line that is my point today. But... And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. When you have come back from your sinful ways, when Satan has sifted you, teach that grace that you have experienced from me to your brothers. Okay? So this is a thing, you know, when, when you experience the mercies of God, when you experience the richness of his forgiveness, it is a thing that the Lord commands. Turn back and teach it to others. And this is what we see David doing. In verse one and two, we see David summarizing his main idea of that chapter first, and then much later goes to break down what he means or what the content of his subject is. Most of the times, even in academics, at least in the modern world, this is what we are taught. Have a, an introduction, the body, and then have a conclusion. And a conclusion is really the summary of what you're saying up there. But in this case, we see the opposite happening. The conclusion, in a sense, comes up there. But scholars say, don't be shocked about that. This is a style that the writers of Hebrew, the Hebrew poetry, the writers of, of poetry in Hebrew, this is a style that they would use. So they would start in a sense, this is what I mean, or this is the conclusion of the things that I'm about to say. And we see this style of happening. I think I really, uh, I enjoy reading little facts about how the Bible is written. That's why I'm giving you this information, by the way, in case you're wondering. Verse one and two. Verse 1 and 2, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David starts by proclaiming or pronouncing the blessed condition of the man who has experienced the forgiveness of their transgressions by God. And here's what we mean by the word transgression. It is a sin that has been committed knowingly. I don't know whether when you were growing in Sunday school, you were taught this thing. Father Lord, forgive me for the sins I have committed knowingly and for the sins I have committed unknowingly. Or if you want to sound very learned, you say the sins of omission. You know, you did not know that you are doing them. But the ones being addressed here are sins that you committed knowingly. You knew this is what God says. You knew this is what the word of God says. But you went and did the very opposite of that. So, David is saying, blessed is that man who has done that, who has committed sins knowingly, but has received forgiveness, has received, a, he has been pardoned in their estate. And this is what forgiveness in this case means. It means your sin has been taken off or taken away. Blessed is that person, is what we're essentially reading in verse one. But remember, remember what we learned about the meaning of blessedness is the Hebrew new word I, I kind of gave you, happy, fulfilled, fortunate, and content. Let's apply this meaning here. So 
Essentially, verse 22 is saying, happy and fortunate is not the person who has not sinned. Happiness and fortunate is not the person who has not offended God. Happiness and fortunate is not the person who has been a diligent law keeper. Here's what he's saying. Happiness and blessed is the lawbreaker that has turned to God for cleansing. Cleansing with high soap, as we see in the book of chapter, chapter 51 of Psalm, again, the, the, the Psalm of David. That that person who has received a cleansing, knowing I went and did contrary to what the Lord commands, but I went to him and asked for forgiveness, and he forgave me. He covered my shame. He covered my sin. Blessed is that person. Isn't it interesting? Do you see how different it is from last week? This one committed sin, but they are joyous because they have experienced the forgiveness of the Lord. Here's what a guy called C.H. Spurgeon has to say. He is blessed indeed who has a substitute to stand in for him, to whose account all his debts may be set down. Amen? There's this verse, there's this last line in, in, in verse 2 that says, and in whose spirit there's no deceit. Can there be ever such a person? In whose spirit there's no deceit. But the psalmist is trying to show us this is what confession of your sin does to you. It gives you a clean slate. Your life sort of becomes an open book and there's no shame for you to hide behind it because you know I've taken my shame and my guilt and the Lord has received it and given me his covering and now I can stand confidently. Even though I know this is shameful, even though I know this is bad, the Lord has judged me but he has done it in this way. He's looked at Christ and what he has fulfilled for me and granted me that forgiveness. This is what person in whose deceit, in whose heart there's no deceit. So a pardoned person in a sense deals honestly with himself, with his God and with his people. There's nothing for you to hide to your spouse, huh? to your family, to your friends, to your church, in whose spirit there's no deceit. Because you know you've acknowledged, I am so sinful, but I know where to go with my sin. I know where to go with my burden. Those who are justified from fault are sanctified from falsehood. Again, C.H. Spurgeon says that. Isn't, isn't that a wonderful summary of what you're saying? Those who have been justified from fault are sanctified from, from, from falsehood. And that's why we can say, in whose spirit, there's no deceit. Verse 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day and night. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the summer heat. David pro progresses here in verse 3 and 4 to, to in a sense, in a, in, a, in a manner of speaking, to reflect on that time. Because he's telling this psalm in, in, in retrospect when he's writing this. To in a sense tell, there's a time I had sinned and I had not taken this sin before the Lord. I had not gone there for confession. And this is what happened to me. My bones wasted away. They wasted away through all my groaning day and night. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. His strength had, in a sense, been sucked. So David here is giving us 
a physical description of what was happening to him because of an unconfessed sin that was in his heart. He says that the Lord's hand was heavy upon me. His bones, um, and if you're going to, metaphorically speaking, bones are like the strong pillars in the inside of you. So these things that I'm, the skeleton that's making me stand right now, is sort of, in a sense, caved in because of the grief that was so great before him, because of the sin that he was carrying. And please note, I have a caveat there to say, please note that the grief and this, and this burden and this mourning that we are told here David was experiencing, the groaning all day and night, is not the godly sorrow that we stand here over and over again and tell you to experience when you're confessing. No, this is the heavy burden of sin that was laying on his back. Maybe the condemnation that we know the enemy brings when you're bearing guilt, you know what I mean? So I th this is what uh, the psalmist is trying to describe. It was so great, it robbed him, him of energy and vitality. And that's what he's saying, uh, he's saying uh, down there, my strength was sapped as in the summer heat. Remember what the blessed person in chapter one was like? He's like a tree planted by the streams of water. But this one who is carrying this great guilt is not like that tree. You know, a plant under the summer heat withers, you know. It, it, it just falls. The withering that we were talking about last week. It just, it just falls. So David goes to great extents of describing how miserable he was when he was carrying this burden. But I want to pause there and ask, isn't this what happens when we sin and we have not confessed, especially as believers, when we know greatly what we have done? Isn't this what we feel when you know in your dealings, in your businesses, you have allowed a bribe to go through that will deny kids in a certain public hospital to experience good health. You know, to come to Kiongelea when there are news all over saying how many kids have died to do in Kenyatta National Hospital, you cringe back there. I'm the one who signed that document, and I know the money went to Nani, to Nani, to Nani. Do you know how we hide? Do you know how shame comes on us? So your hiding is not because I'm remorseful. It's, oh my goodness, I do not want to be found out. Your strength and, and vigor when you're standing before people cannot be felt, cannot be seen. It is when, probably, we are talking about sexual purity here, and we talk about it confidently. We tell, ooh, David Alkwana Juamungu, how could he do this? But you cannot, you don't want even, you know, the way sometimes the preacher is speaking and they look at you. You do not want a preacher to come staring at you because they're like, my goodness, my sin have been, have been seen. But someone who has confessed, Nicole, yeah, that was me. But, but thank God, I confessed it and I know the Lord has forgiven me. But unconfessed sin makes you hide, makes you stay in the back. You don't serve anymore in the worship team. You don't serve anymore in the preaching because you know what you have been up to. That's the weight of the unconfessed sin. That's what, the bones being wasted away, the, the withering like a plant that's under the scorching sun, that's what unconfessed sin does to you, believer. Verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgive the guilt of my sin. Isn't, isn't that a seemingly simple step that David took, right? Then I said, 
I will confess my sins to the Lord. It's like he sat, he sat and felt like and started wondering, I, why have I been wallowing in grief and sorrow and disillusionment and I have God that I can go to? But God, the all-knowing God, the omniscient God, still required him to do it. He knows it. You wonder and ask yourself, why does he require you to still come and confess it if he knows already what you have done? It's because there's a much greater work that will be accomplished in us. There's a humility that he grants you so that when you say we want to bear the fruit of the spirit, that is humility. It is some of these things. So your confession is, is not God is seated there like, ah, la, 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 pastor, reverend, how could you? That's not what you're getting God to, to react like. He knows it, but he still calls you to do it, the all-knowing God, so that there may be lightnesses, so that he may achieve much more that is in you. So that when we, we use this word that as Christians we love using, sanctification, he ensures that day by day you're becoming more like him, which is what we say, becoming Christ-like. But you see what David said? He said, not anymore. Such, such a simple step, not complex at all. I will confess it to the Lord. And we see an equivalent of this in, in John, in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all our unrighteousness. And here's what I want to ponder and ask you. Do you see the withering and the lack of energy and vitality that David describes here? I want to bring it home and ask you, could it be the reason why you're lacking joy, enthusiasm, vitality, joy in the community of, of brotherhood, of real group, of serving up here? Could it be because the reason you're walking like a, you know how a rained on chicken you describe walks like? Could it be that's what is happening in your heart? Could it be it's because there's an unconfessed sin that you know you're carrying in your heart? But there's a way out for us. There's some words in, in Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. What kind of rest do we, why rest? Why, Christ, why did you have to use the word rest? Sin is burdensome. It is a heavy load that's placed on your back. And probably you've pondered and reflected on that question, and your answer is yes. Here's the action step. Acknowledge, agree with God, and confess it. Confess it before the Lord, who is the forgiver of our transgressions, and know joy, energy, vitality, anything else, lightness, Joy of ministry on the other side of confession. That is what is awaiting you. Mention it before God. Come say, Lord, in, uh, in you and you only have I sinned against. And come experience. But when I say, I, I ponder that, when I ask you to ponder on that question, could it be that's what you're carrying? I want to warn us here as a church, because I know we are prone to that. This is not a license for us to walk around looking at, mm, Lorraine, the joy you're lacking must be seen in your heart. Lazima kuna, I'm sure, I can tell, me I can tell. It's something, it's this thing. That's not what you are saying, guys. 
This that you're talking about, it's for you to apply it to yourself. It's not for you to apply it to others. But we know as believers, we are so prone to that. We listen this, to the sermon for someone else. Mm. That's what we, we enjoy. That's what we take joy in. Mm. Bishop Eburudia, what do we say? Shouter. Because, so that's what we tell people. Because you know, you're telling, mm-hmm. but I hope our attitude can change. That we will know this is first to ourselves. Remember, there are people in the Bible who did that in the book of Job. Do you remember the friends of Job who in a sense went to, to console him when he was going through a difficult time? They did exactly this. They went telling him, mm, Job, this suffering, let me tell you, cannot be anything else. It is the unconfessed sin in your heart that is making you suffer like that. The good God we know, the mighty one who can hold a Leviathan with a, with a, with a nose on its nose, Mm-mm, he cannot do that. There must be sin. But you remember the end of that conversation? The Lord came and rebuked them. He rebuked them greatly. So be wary as I am saying this statement to now start watching out people and label and label your yeah, sin, unconfessed sin. Mm, that's what we meant. Confess one to another. Brian, I can tell you not to come and confess to me. See, even James says that. Be wary of that. It's only the Lord who truly knows the heart of men. And apply that to yourself. Someone said, when it comes to this issue, then I acknowledge the simple step you're saying that you're being given here. Someone said, it's not, it's not that that is complex, you're going to confess, but it's the humility to own our sinful actions. And so here's the application point for today. Pray that the Lord will soften your heart. Pray that this complexity that comes with being broken before the Lord, that he will instead give you a heart of flesh. That he will make you grieve over your sin. That he will make you say, indeed, God, I have rationalized this. I have explained this way out. I have said it's the economy, Aruto. I have said, ah, systemic evil. There's no way around that. Passport, there's no way around that. Like, what can you do in the scholarship? Is God and understand. Do you know how we rationalize? Do you discia in that statement, right? Isn't that what we do? But God never lowers his standards. He still requires you to call what he calls sin to be sin and agree with him. So pray that he will soften your heart. Pray that he will make you grieve over it, but in a manner, not what we are seeing in verse, not what we saw in verse 3, but in a manner that makes you run to him so that your load can be made lighter. Verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. David has experienced the blessedness of forgiveness. And now, can you notice a change of tone? Therefore, let everyone. He's now transitioned into teaching people what he promised up there. Right? What we said he promised in, 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 in chapter 51. He's turning back and is now teaching transgressors the way of the Lord, what to do when you're in that situation. And then he adds this, this last statement on that verse that it says, pray to you while you may be found. And I'd like us to pause there a little bit. And I, here's what I want to say. God's patience is not unlimited. You know how sometimes we're told we take grace casually, we as Christians? God's patience is not unlimited. 
several instances in the word of God, we, we, we see him, in a sense, giving people over to their sinful choices and desires. You know, it's like he sits there, you know, the, the, the famous Swahili proverb, that's what we say. We see several instances and stories in the Bible where God looks like, you Romans, is that what you have chosen? Sure, go ahead. Because you have hardened your heart. You know what I say. You know what I prescribe. You know what I have taught you from since you were young. You Israelites, you saw my mighty works all the way from the deliverance in Egypt. But you still have decided to turn away from me. I told you do not associate yourself with the Canaanites. But you still did it. He lets you go. He lets you be. That's what you've decided. Nisawa. And remember, God is not there. We say he's not a remote control. I want you to go here. So he switches you on there. He gives man the freedom of will, the freedom of choice. But David is reminding us this. Pray to you. Let all who fear you pray to you while you may be found. He urges the Christian, the believer, the godly person to not test the Lord to that extent. But here's something else I can derive from the reading of that statement that a day is also coming, you know, praying is really like knocking on the doors. And those are the metaphors that are used in the New Testament, seeking, knocking, and all that. So a day is also coming when the door for prayer will be shut, where knocking will be too late. You know, you calling on the door, now I'm ready to accept you. And then it will be like, it's no time. Remember the story of um, Lazarus? Lazarus and the rich man, remember? The rich man is in hell and he's saying, Nitemetumate, basi, basi kama utani said, go, please go send your people. It was too late for him to make that plea. A day is coming when that will be the case. And so the question is to especially the unbelievers, do you hear the call of God? Do you hear him telling you that you're not in charge of your time? that he is the one who determines the days that are numbered here on earth for us. Sometimes we feel like, ah, me, now let me, let me just have fun for a little bit, and then when I'm slightly older, that's what the thing actually we thought about, when I'm slightly older, then now I will believe God for real. And you know what that does to you? It puts you in the center. You're like you're the one who runs your life. But over and over in scripture, we know nobody knows the day of their death. We keep saying, I'll accept the Lord on my deathbed. Who told you you'll be on your deathbed? Who told you that's how you will die? So let anyone who calls on me, let anyone who prays, who prays to you do it now while you may be found. So unbeliever, waste not the day of your salvation. Seize this opportunity and open your door. Open the door of your heart and accept Jesus Christ. And then he goes to say, Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. This is addressing the righteous person, the godly person, the blessed person who has received the forgiveness of their transgressions. And this is in a sense to say, uh, times will come that are difficult, that are difficult enough to even shake and waver your faith. You're a believer, but you're like, anyway, I, I really doubt whether this God is still at work in, in my life. But here's what they say. That when those waters come, that one who has put their hope in Jesus Christ, the waters will not overwhelm them. The righteous person will know that even when they fall, they know that they have God. When their, their faith 
is shaken and wavered, they have God to run to for the forgiveness of their sins. These mighty waters, these overwhelming circumstances that are around me, these questions of God, are you really there in this suffering? Are you really there? You allowed the pillars of my life, my parents, to pass. Are you really there? Those times will come. But the righteous man will still be encouraged in their faith to know that God is still with them. When they fall, when they leave the ways of God, they can go and confess and know that they will receive forgiveness. Verse 7, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Notice the, the change of thought. The man up there, in the verses up there, who experienced sort of oppression from God, from the hand of God, here finds him. The story has changed. Finds him to be a shelter and a refuge. David, what happened? Now we are singing, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. But this is the power of confession. This is the power of saying, God, indeed, I am a sinner and I cannot do without you. It changes your song. You realize, it makes you and helps you realize that you are defenseless and you are exposed and without God, you are not safe at all. And confessed sin you is, is really you having stepped out under the shade, under the covering, under the protection of God. But confession changes your song to this. It changes to, oh God, indeed, you're the one who has carried me through. You're the one who has watched over me all this time. You are my hiding place. I know I can run to you. Even with my guilt, even with my condemnation, I can run to you and I can receive this forgiveness. The blessed man knows that the Lord is his hiding place, that the Lord is his protection, that the Lord is his covering. Verse 8 and 9, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. And then it says, do not be like the mule or the horse which have no understanding, but must be controlled by beat and bridle or they will not come to you. The, here, I will, it, it looks like a reader of, of this psalm can ask, wait, who is talking at this time? Is it, is it David? Is it God? There's a change of tone. But I think this was God speaking prophetically through David. You know, he gives David a promise. He gives a, two, two things rather. There's a promise and then there's a warning. I will do this to you. I will instruct you and lead you. But then verse 9 goes to, to a warning. Do not be like. Do you see the two? Are we together to that extent? So the Lord, in the promise, promises David to instruct him. And we know this happens through the guiding and the leading of the Holy Spirit that resides in us. We, in a sense, become, you know, people who are led, people who are instructed, people who are guided in this way, which are different metaphors to show instruction and guiding and counsel. We become like sheep that are in, the, in his pasture. We become this sheep that in, in Psalm 23, David declares, the Lord is my shepherd, so I shall not be in want. I shall lack nothing other versions would render. He makes me lie down in green pastures as the sheep wants to feed. There's refreshment. The grass that is there is green for me, so I know I shall be fed in my soul. We become like sheep 
and say these words again, that in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for I know my shepherd is there watching over me, protecting me, and telling me, take this step, don't take that one even though you are inside there. This is the promise that David gives. This is the promise that God gives to these people who are experiencing the forgiveness of their transgressions. Instruction, counsel, and guidance. But he also does the warning, the warning bit. He warns us against stubbornness. And the stubbornness here is, is, uh, is compared to an animal. You know, the old English would render the meaning to a brute. That sounds even bad to an animal. You know, one that is senseless, that is mindless, and that lacks understanding. And the analogy given here is that of a horse and a mule. I don't know, when you see horses, for you that I've seen, do you see the, 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 the whatever, what are they called? The straps, the straps that are around here. Have you, have you ever seen? Muliona kwa bonfire. You know, <laughs> we, had, we had horses. Those ones are what are being referred to, the, the beat and the bridle. So one of them, I can't remember which is the beat and which is the bridle, one of them is usually in the mouth, in the mouth of the horse. And what the rider does, uh, and I'm not a rider, I just know a little bit, what, there's some pressure that's applied on that gadget that is in the mouth. That pressure has a bit of pain. And when this horse feels the pain is when it follows the direction coupled with some, some kugonga gongwa that's there is when now the horse follows the direction the rider wants to go. Do you know what God is telling us? Do not be like that animal. That you have to wait for pressure and pain to follow him. You have to wait for external difficult circumstances for you to look for him and to search him out hard and say, Enyewe God, I am back. I am back here, I am help me. Don't wait for those difficult things. Remember the story of the prodigal son? It is after he suffered out there, that's when he remembered, ah, I have a home, I have a father, and he owns this thing. Let me go back, at least to Nikule, those things that pigs eat, because here it is that bad. We are warned to not be like that, to not entertain that kind of stubbornness. So Spurgeon says this, let's instead be like this like a feather in the wind, wafted redly in the breath of God. You know, there's some lightness you're ready to hear and to be led by the voice of the Holy Spirit to take the right direction. It's not to indulge in sin and then remember, I have got to go. Do not be like the mule or the horse that have to be controlled by beat and bridle. We who are believers, we who are the righteous, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit who resides in the inside of us. He gives us wisdom. He nudges us and tells us the way we should go. How about we just open up ourselves to him and listen to him and follow his ways? But here's a warning or a statement, let me put it that way. When we become stubborn, our God is not afraid to provide difficult circumstances to call you back. He, he does that often. At least, I hope you have experienced that in your Christian journey. If you harden your heart and become like the horse and the mule, he will provide them, and you will come back. Which is good. By the way, guys, come for prayers. I'm not saying don't come for it. But I'm saying the, the Lord is reminding us some things, some things that come our way, we can avoid them. Don't be difficult. Don't be stubborn. Just keep and follow the Lord and know his statutes. And when you fall off, don't wallow in your sin. Don't swim in it. Run to him for forgiveness. 
for he's able to grant it. It is available at his mercy seat. He's able to offer that to you. Do not be like the horse or the mule. Verse 10 is talks to, to the wicked. It talks to the wicked and says, Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds him, the man who trusts him. So the, the ungodly, before we go to the righteous, the ungodly is still being addressed. Last week we saw that in Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 32 is still addressing the ungodly. The one who Roman says, if you're still struggling with the meaning of who the wicked or the ungodly is, is the one who is self-seeking and who rejects the, the truth and follows evil. And the, that, that verse says, chapter 2 of Romans, it says, for that person there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. If you're still struggling with that concept, it says, woe, many are the woes of the ungodly. But the Lord surrounds the man who trusts in him with songs, with unfailing love, with songs of deliverance. So unbeliever, the Lord is still not done with you. Pray to him while he may still be found. Open up your heart. Pray for a conviction in your heart and try, at least give him a chance and figure out, ninini he coin for me. Let me just try and figure out. But don't stand there with a heart that is so guarded. Open up, try, just make a small way. God can enter there. Maybe yours is questions about the Bible, about who Christ is, about this God who is so good, yet has allowed so much suffering to still go on in the world. Maybe those are your questions, and that's what makes you an unbeliever. Don't, don't, don't harden yourself and stay in that, in that seemingly truth that you hold on to. How about you say, that's what I believe, but let me hear what others have to say about it. Let me see these ones who are too passionate about God and, 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 and being called to confession. Let's see what he has to say about that. Open up your heart, but with your continual sowing the seeds of sin, that is what you will reap. You will continue experiencing sorrow in your heart, disappointment in your heart, terror in your heart. You will experience terror in this world, Many are your words, but you will experience terror in the day to come, when that day of judgment comes, as we already learned last week. But for this righteous person, the Lord surrounds him with songs of unfailing love. It is everything that God does is covered and filled with his love and with his care. Even though he falls, he knows that he can rise up. That's the song of deliverance, that's the unfailing love of God that the righteous experiences, but not so the wicked. And then finally, the psalmist wraps up with this, rejoice in the Lord and be glad you're righteous, seeing all you who are upright in heart. The instruction here is to be joyful. You know, you realize the way it's told, rejoice in the Lord, it's, it's not a suggestion, it's like a command. And I think what I learned from there, that joy is not just a privilege I enjoy when I'm in the family of God, but it is also commanded of me who is righteous. And we see that in Philippians 4, 6, when it says, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. When you read that, you will see exclamation mark. So Paul was in a sense maybe shouting it to them. And you know, when something is shouted, it's a command that's being given to you. So joy here is like a command being given to the believers. So may you be found delighting and rejoicing in God. 
This psalm ends with a call for God's people to remember and to respond to the things God has done with praising and with rejoicing. Respond to the forgiveness of his transgressions with praising. Respond to his covering, to him becoming a refuge and a shelter with praising. Respond to him by saying, you the forgiver of my transgressions, you are mine. You are mine and I belong to you. And I will forever praise you for that. Rejoice, you believer, you mamlaka who calls on the name of God, that you can sing what we see in verse 2 of this psalm. The blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Rejoice because this blessing that's being pronounced on you was the opposite of what happened to Jesus. When when our sin is not counted on us, it was counted on Jesus. Rejoice in that, that there was a perfect sacrifice available to go into my place so that you may go through the fiery furnace, through the burning, through the tears, through the shedding of blood, through humiliation, so that I may be acceptable. Rejoice that you now, a believer, can say these words confidently, that Jesus is yours that Jesus has done it fully for me. Rejoice that your transgressions have been fully borne by Christ. And now you can say that I am redeemed of the Lord, that I am a child of God, that I truly, fully belong in his fold. And so here's the wrap-up, guys. Blessed is the man who enjoys a right standing with God because Christ has become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. May the Lord bless you, may the Lord keep you, and may the Lord continue making his face to shine upon you now and forever.